Let's pray. God, we are here for you. It, it feels selfish sometimes to think that we're going to church for us because sometimes it feels good or we look forward to seeing the people there or, or worship brings something back into our hearts and minds that maybe gets lost during the week. But God, we're here for you and we do invite your Holy Spirit to be present in this place. We know that it is through him opening our ears and our hearts, our minds, our eyes that we are going to see you more clearly and see ourselves more clearly. And so God, we just give this time to you. And God, we ask that as we open your word, that you would speak to us, both through the words of the message and through your word and through the way that your Holy Spirit speaks to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Messages are a weird thing. Um, when, when I talk about them with people who are going to, to speak here, I, I say there's three things that you really want to focus on. You want to focus on the text and then the context of that text. And then the application, what do we do about what does it say to us? But when you do those things, different messages bring about different feelings. Some messages make us feel really good about ourselves. And, and some messages are just exciting because the action in them is awesome. And then some messages, it feels like we've just gotten our toes stomped on. Today, I'm quite intentionally not going to try to, to do any of that. I, I'm going to leave it to the Holy Spirit to bring about whatever reaction in you the Holy Spirit brings about. Because what we're going to talk about is reactions. This early Christian church has grown from 120 to 8,000 in a very small amount of time. And what we see today is the reaction of those people to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it's an interesting thing because we've all got different reactions. We, we, don't, always, we don't always get to choose them. Sometimes they just come out of us. And so as an example, if, if you have spent any time around my wife, Deidre, at all, there is a phrase that comes out of her mouth at the most ridiculous times sometimes. It can be 95 degrees and the phrase falls out of her mouth and the, the phrase is, I am literally freezing. I don't know how it works. She's a girl from Duluth. And she says, just because I grew up in Duluth doesn't mean I like it there. She's a Florida girl. We're on the patio last week, and it was one of those days. It had been 100 degrees. And it was finally cooling off to about 80, and there's this, this little wisp of a breeze rustling through the grass. And, and sure enough, I'm like, this is the first time I feel like I can breathe in 36 hours. And she says, I think I'm going to go get a sweatshirt. I'm literally freezing. <laughs> so a friend gave her a sweatshirt that says, literally freezing. It's just her reaction. She reacts to temperatures completely different than I do. When it's hot, the hotter the better, the happier she is. For me, I just want to go find air conditioning and hide. I don't really think about it. It's just my reaction. And you've got reactions as well. Reactions just come out of us. Some of you are those kind of people. When you hear a song, or maybe there's a whole bunch of them, you can't help but start singing and dancing and you smile and you light up. And I wish my brain worked like you. I wish that was my reaction. But you know, it's just a reaction. It's just, it just happens. And then some of you, when you hear a police siren, your reaction is you run and hide. But all of us, we kind of, there's this one thing that we all share in common. When we see the lights behind us, the red and the blue ones, you all check your speed limit and hit the brakes, don't you? 
It's just our reaction. It's just how we're wired. We don't even think about it. It just, it just simply happens. Reactions are a part of who we are. And today we're going to take a look at this church that had grown to 8,000 people. 8,000 people. It had done it in a, in a matter of days. And it had done it because they believed in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work among them and in the truth of who Jesus was. And so we're going to see the reaction of this church as they're growing. We all react different ways and, and for different reasons. But we're going to see what this church did. And, and there's going to be some lessons for us. What is their reaction to being filled with the Holy Spirit? How do they encounter and engage with the world around them? What does it do to them individually? What does it do to them as a group? And, and I'm going to try very hard not to try to push you in a direction for how you react, but rather to just present the text to you, give you the context and let you provide your own application. I'll ask a few questions because that's what I do. But I really want to simply open it up and to see, let you see where it is that you fit in to these verses as we get this glimpse into the early Christian church, into a glimpse of what we can be. And so starting in Acts 4, it's on page 26 if you've got the Acts journal. And if you're a note taker, I'll let you know ahead of time there are five reactions that we're going to be paying attention to today. So starting in verse 32 of Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said uh, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great was the grace upon all of them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number, according to Luke in the book of Acts at this point, is a little over 8,000. There was 120 believers that were in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and began to speak in tongues. Peter preached a sermon explaining that they weren't drunk, but, drunk, but that it was the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus and were baptized right there on that day. And then they were walking, Peter and John were walking into the temple and there was a lame man and, and they healed him. They didn't give him money, which is what he thought he wanted. They gave him Jesus, which is what he needed. And the result of it was 5,000 more people were saved and put their faith in Jesus. And so there's 8,000 people in this church right now. And the Bible says that the number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's a lot of people to be of one heart and one soul. It doesn't just mean that they agreed. It means that they were in agreement. It means that there weren't dis, uh, divisions and, 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 and disagreements among them. They were of one purpose. They were of one mission and ministry. They agreed to everything. They lived with the pers- purpose and the priority of proclaiming the name of Jesus. They did life and ministry as one, even though they were 8,000. And, and this sounds completely ridiculous in our world. How do you get 8,000 people to agree on anything? I mean, that, that's a little bit far-fetched, isn't it? And yet it says that the full number were of one heart and soul. 
Every single one of the ones who believed in Jesus were of one heart and soul, and they agreed on the cause and the purpose of what they were doing. Their personal feelings and opinions, it isn't that they didn't have them. It's that they weren't more important than the ministry and the mission that they were called to. Their feelings and opinions didn't cause disagreements. Rather, what was, what was most important was where they agreed on Jesus. That was their priority. And 8,000 of them were in agreement. They worked together for the same purpose with the same passion. They lived and ministered and worked in unity. And it's incredible to think about a church of 8,000 that can do that. My first call was a church of 8,000. It was at two separate campuses. And there was a lot of non-agreement there. But that's true of every church, not just that church. I just happened to have been a part of two churches in my history that had about 8,000 members. And so this, for me, is really kind of a remarkable thing because I bring it back to my own life and you can bring it to yours. Think about it. How often, if you're married, how often do the two of you agree about everything? Of one heart and one soul. I I did a wedding a few days ago and we talked about how you are now one, which means that there's no longer a winner and a loser. Either you win together or you lose together. There is no winner and loser. In marriage, it is extremely difficult to be of one heart and soul. And yet, scripturally, that's what the Bible talks about. We struggle in relationships. If you've ever had a business partnership or you've had to work closely with somebody where their opinion, their decision, their their direction and belief and vision was the same weight as your own, it's really hard to have everything in common. And here's 8,000 people. And the only way... That you can have 8,000 people that have everything in common is in the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit at work. We're not nearly a church of 8,000. But we're a church of enough people that we don't have everything in common. Sometimes people don't agree and, and sometimes it gets really difficult. And that isn't because it's bad people involved. It means because we're people and and it's hard for us to agree in all things at all times. And yet that's what was happening at this church. And the only way that that's possible is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work. See, God expects us as believers to be in unity about all things where Jesus, Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are concerned. That we should be of one person. We should be of one mind. Our opinions, which we're allowed to have, even differences of opinions, should not lead to division. And yet in America, we're given this message that whatever you believe and whatever you want and whatever you think is true, that's what's right and you can fight for it. We're entitled to our opinion. We can even have disagreements. The Bible says disagreements are good. They help us get to the truth. But they shouldn't cause division. So the first reaction... For note-takers, the first reaction this group had to their community and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work among them was true unity of mission and purpose. How many places in your life are you connected to another person where you have true unity of mission and purpose? Do you have a church family that that's true of? Maybe someone in your house? Maybe a spouse or a parent and child? Do you have true unity of mission and purpose the way these 8,000 people did? Because here's the deal. The Holy Spirit does one thing consistently throughout history. The Holy Spirit brings order out of chaos, and the Holy Spirit brings unity. Where the Holy Spirit exists in truth, there is unity. And so as Christians, we need to take this seriously because 
We're the ones that draw lines and distance ourselves from each other. We're the ones that decide that, that someone else's opinion or beliefs or ideas, you know, they're so far away from my own that they're wrong and I don't want to talk to them anymore. But where the Holy Spirit is present, that is impossible. See, our beliefs and our truths and our ideas, they need to give way to God's truth when it comes to us as Christian community. God's Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity, and it always, He always, always brings order out of chaos. In the Spirit, there are differences, but there are never divisions. And when there are differences in the church, that's okay. We can talk those out. We can lovingly work through them. When there are divisions, it means the Holy Spirit has been excluded from the conversation. And this 8,000 people were of one heart and soul. And no one said, the rest of the verse, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. 8,000 people who all believe the same thing is that everything that they have doesn't belong to them. In fact, it really does belong to God. And that they consider it all of everyone else's. Can you imagine being a part of a group of people? Just think about two families that everything you have and everything they have you consider ours. 8,000 people that thought that way. They understand that everything that we're given is a gift from God that we're called to steward. And they got that. And this text, unfortunately, has been horribly misunderstood, both in the church and people who are critical of the church. Uh, people say all kinds of crazy things. The Christian church has been accused of all kinds of crazy things and, and cult-like behavior because of this verse. But we need to see what the Bible says and what the Bible does not say, and it will become very clear very quickly. Because really what, what Luke is talking about as he records this in Acts is a collective condition of the individual hearts of the people. That people's hearts and their souls and their minds were all in agreement and were unified of purpose. See, it's interesting how this gathering of people understood that everything that they have really belonged to God. We're stewards of what everything that you've got, I don't care if it's money or stuff, you are a steward. God has given that to you to steward in this lifetime. You get to enjoy it, but it's to be used for His glory. If you think that it is really yours, let me just ask your question. Have you ever made plans for what's going to happen to it when you die? It's called a will. Sure you have. It's because you know you can't take it with you. You steward it during this life and then it goes to someone else. This group of believers, they understood that early and they were able to use that as a way to grow the gospel. But what people do, what, what the world does is they take this verse and they say, well, see, Jesus was a communist. The Bible's talking about communism. That, that's what it's all about. There's a difference between what the world calls communism and what the Bible calls community. Communism or socialism or the other things that it's being called in our country this, these days and to soften it is when the government takes what's yours and they give it to whomever thinks that they need it, starting with the ones who took it. That's communism. Community is when you share what God has given you to steward and you share it willingly with whomever it is that you see needs it. That's community. And what Luke is recording in the book of Acts is that these people filled with the Holy Spirit understood the power of community. It isn't a forced communism thing. It's a willing community 
thing. And, and there's people in America today who think that communism is the right answer for America's problems. I, I find it fascinating. They would rather have all of us give everything that we have to the government, trusting that politicians will give it out fairly to the people who actually need it, and at the same time silence the voice of Christians who would speak the truth of God's work among us. This isn't a political statement. This is an absolute biblical statement. What we're reading about in the book of Acts is biblical community. See, but it wasn't just their understanding of community. It was an understanding of their generosity that set them apart. They understood what they were part of and they were grateful for it. Because of that generosity, they were having an impact on the people around them. They had everything in common and people saw it. Because of the Holy Spirit in them, their whole understanding of their place in the society changed. And so what impact does the Holy Spirit have on your life? How do you see the world and the people in it differently? How does the Holy Spirit cause you to look at the resources, the financial resources, the physical resources, the real estate, the cars and the trucks, the cabins and the lake homes and the retirement portfolios? How does the Holy Spirit cause you to look at those things differently? Are you growing them only for yourself or are you understanding that God has given those to you to steward for the good of his kingdom? So the second reaction to the presence of the Holy Spirit is that they became a people of great generosity, willing generosity. They saw what the Holy Spirit was doing in each other and they became a a group of great generosity. They no longer were a group of people who expected to receive the generosity of others. Rather, they saw the power and the joy and being the givers of great generosity that they were able to bless others. You hear it as kids, it's better to give than to receive, but that's a lesson many of us never learn. It truly is. God talks about that all the time. Has the Holy Spirit in you helped you to understand that everything that you have is an opportunity to give to someone else to meet a need that maybe God gave that to you to meet? It's an opportunity to bless other people. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The power wasn't in the apostles' preaching. The power isn't in the preaching up here or from the podium or the lectern or the pulpit or the platform of any other place where a pastor stands today. The power is in the name of Jesus. The power is in preaching the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit being the one that brings people to faith. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's kind of funny because that's what got him in trouble. If you go back just a few verses, what got him in trouble with the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees, as you remember, were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in life after death, right? And they were brought in and said, you know, by what name do you do this? And they had no reason that they could punish them because they hadn't actually done anything wrong. And the people were all for it. And they said, well, then as you go out of here, you can leave. But don't talk about Jesus to anybody. You have to stop talking about Jesus. Because they didn't want to talk about the resurrection from the dead because it wasn't just an idea anymore. It wasn't just an Old Testament promise. Now there was a person tied to it, and his name was Jesus, God's son. And so what did they do? They gave their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. They did the exact opposite of what they were told to do. Why? Because they couldn't help it. And when Jesus gets a hold of you and the Holy Spirit fills you, you can't help but tell people about Jesus. Why? Because you're not the same person you were. You have a whole new understanding of who you were back then and what Jesus did for you that you couldn't do on your own. 
And suddenly everybody is someone who you want to talk to about it. Amen. Amen. And that's what's happening. There's no way that they could follow those instructions. In fact, they did the opposite thing. And because they were faithful, the Bible says great grace was upon them. Not everybody was talking, but because they were of one heart and soul, as the apostles were doing the speaking and telling about Jesus, great grace was on all the people because they were united. See, when we've met Jesus and our lives have been transformed by his grace on us, then the natural reaction is to tell others about them, excuse me, about him, and to invite them to the places where we meet him. The open door has grown over these 10 years because people just like you talked to people just like you and told them about the Jesus that you met in places just like this. You're here today more than likely because someone told you about this place. The idea of an invitation is such a powerful thing. Come and meet Jesus. Yeah, the music is great. The, the, the preaching is, yeah, well, well, whatever. But you know what you're going to hear about Jesus? That's the important part. You're going to hear about Jesus. Tell them about the Jesus that you've met. Has the Holy Spirit filled you in such a way that you cannot not talk about Jesus? That you can't help but to tell people about him? So the third reaction of the Holy Spirit was to become bold in their testimony about Jesus and about his resurrection from the dead. Who's the last person that you told about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead? That you have a new life and they can have one too. That they don't have to fear death, but they can look forward to an eternity in heaven. You see, these guys were no longer passive observers. They were passionate speakers. They were the storytellers of what they'd seen and heard. And they understood that it was their responsibility, their privilege, their opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. 8,000 people. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They were all in it for the good news of the gospel in the name of Jesus. It doesn't say everybody sold everything all at once. It says it had need. People were willing to. They weren't forced to. And that statement about they laid it at the apostles' feet, that was a sign of submission. That's a sign of saying, this is what God's entrusted to me, but now I'm going to give it to you. And you do with it what needs to be done. You take care of the people. It's a a sign of submission and trust to the leadership of the apostles. And, And that's a strange thing in our church because there was no strings attached. That's an unusual thing in our world. In the Christian church in America today, so much of the giving has strings attached. Well, I'll do this if you do that. So I've got names on everything. I served a church once, and they needed new chairs. They were worried about chairs. As you can see, our chairs don't all match. We're not so worried about chairs. We're worried about talking about Jesus, right? So they needed new chairs, and they they decided they were going to start raising money for it. And a guy came forward and said, well, you need $15,000. i will give you $15,000. You can go buy new chairs. Awesome. Search for money is over. That's great. $15,000. However... They have to be the style of chair that I want. They have to be the color that I like and the fabric that I choose. That's not much of a gift. The church never took the chairs. Sometimes we give and we think that we're so generous, but in fact, there's strings attached. These people had no strings attached to their giving. The other thing that's interesting is there's no discussion here of tithing. 
There's no discussion whatsoever of giving 10% of what you have because tithing was a, was a baseline minimum that they understood. They're, they've gone so far above and beyond the notion of tithing. They're into radical generosity. And it flowed willingly from their hearts. And so the fourth reaction to the Holy Spirit in them was that they were radically committed and completely trusting as they lived the love of Jesus for each other. They were radically committed and completely trusting of each other as they lived the love of Jesus for each other. Verse 36, this is the last, last two verses now. This is an interesting one because it seems like it's a footnote, but just wait till we understand it. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, because it means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, that's what everybody was doing. Why does this guy get a mention? By name, no less. They talk about where he came from, so we were sure of who he was. Why in the world did Luke include him? He's doing what everybody else in this church is doing. There's nothing special about it, but there is. There's something special about his. Luke includes the word that he's a Levite. And a Levite was any male son born in the lineage of the tribe of Levi. They were the temple priests. The fact that Luke includes that he was a Levite makes a really, really significant statement. He sold this field and he took the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet like everyone else was doing. That says two things. Number one, it says he has all the rights and titles and privileges of a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet he was a part of this thing that was happening that the temple had tried to stop. A part of it so much that he sold this field that he bought to to give the money to the cause that they were about. Now, as a Levitical priest, he would have had inheritance that he would have gotten as a, as a part of the tribe of Levi, but he wouldn't have had land that he could sell. It would go on to the next generation after him. And so what this means is that this field that he bought, he bought with his own money. It was his private property. It was probably his retirement plan. And I believe the reason that Luke includes it is this guy, this one they call Barnabas, is cutting the ties from everything he had had, all of the wealth and privilege, all of the opportunity and the name that he had as a part of the tribe of Levi, he was cutting a tie with. And then the other thing that he was doing was he was cutting a tie to his future because he just sold his retirement piece of land. And he said, I'm all in for the cause. And I think that what Luke is making us understand is that these people trusted in God for everything. He made a statement that separated him from his past and his lineage And he made a statement in selling that field that he wasn't worried about his future. And is the Holy Spirit so alive in you that you trust God for everything you have outside of your plans? Because remember, everything you've got, everything that you you put away, everything that you save for, eventually it's going to go to somebody else. And what God is really looking for us to do is, what are you doing to grow my kingdom with what I give you here on earth? Not how much can you pass along to the next generation. So the fifth reaction to the Holy Spirit that the people had was they put the needs of others, even people they didn't know and that they would probably never meet, ahead of their current and future needs. They were so radically committed that they gave what they had set aside for their future to people that they would likely never meet. It's what we ask you to do here. When we ask for gifts and tithes and offerings, say, here's your opportunity to give back. We always say, there's a face on the other side of every dollar. You may never meet them, but you know what? They may know Jesus because of your generosity. That's what's happening here. 
They trusted in God's provision for today and for all of their tomorrows. This passage is about this church at their very Holy Spirit-filled best. You want to talk about the great days of the Christian church? This is it. There's some events coming up in a little bit that they're a little bit more embarrassed about. (laughs) But they made the Bible anyway, so we're going to talk about them. So it begs the question, and I struggled with this this week. What's God saying to me? What, what, how am I different because the Holy Spirit is in me? How am I different because I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior? And, and then what about our church? What about you? I'm not going to tell you how you should react or what you should think, but I'll pose the question. Are you different because you've given your life to Jesus And how is your life different because you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Are we as a church living our Holy Spirit best? Are you, as an individual believer, living your Holy Spirit best? Do you trust in God so completely that you're this kind of generous with what God has entrusted to you? Is the Holy Spirit so real that you don't worry about tomorrow because you know God's got to hold it tomorrow? Is your first reaction to be bold in Jesus and radical in your generosity? I believe that this passage is here in the Bible because that's who we're called to be as people and that's who we're called to be as a church. What usually happens, though, when we hear a message like this is that we get encouraged by the life of others and it makes us feel good. It's kind of like a New Year's resolution. I really need to do whatever it is, fill in the blank. But then we come up with reasons or excuses why we don't really need to do that. God's not really talking to me right now. He wouldn't ask me to give that up. God wouldn't ask me to give to that cause. Church gets enough money. They seem to be doing fine. We come up with reasons and excuses why a message isn't for us, and yet it's there for us. So my question to you is, what is the Holy Spirit doing in your mind? The Holy Spirit expects me to be a person of peace, a man of generosity and faith and kindness Without looking out for myself and making excuses not to do the things that God calls me to do. That's my response. What's yours? Who's God calling you to be? I've used this example before in a sermon, but it fits. I think that the American church today has taught us to be really selfish churchgoers. What the message that we've given so often and we hear so often in the American church today is rather than coming to church expecting God to do great things, expecting God to change and to grow and to refine us, we come to church and we treat it like a buffet. It's a buffet that's got some things that we love and some things that we hate. For me, that would be the celery portion, mostly all the vegetables. I'll leave them. My wife, who's literally freezing all the time, can have those. I want the meat and the other stuff. But we come for buffet for the stuff that we want. And then when we're done and we've eaten too much, we go, yeah, I got to pay the bill. It wasn't that great. It wasn't that good. And we start coming up with the reasons that we maybe don't like things and we maybe we're not going to go back to that restaurant to that church anymore. And the problem in America is that we go to church expecting to be stuffed full without bringing anything. And yet the example that we see in this church in the book of Acts is much more like a good old fashioned Minnesota Midwest Scandinavian potluck. That's what it's like. That's the whole idea of the gifts of the Spirit, is that we come together and we bring what we have. And and some of them may seem like great, awesome, incredible gifts, and some of them seem like they're really simple. But, you know, when you put them all together, you've got a potluck where everybody's happy, everybody gets well-fed, everybody grows, and everybody looks forward to saying, when can we do this again? That's what the Christian church should be. But the only way that that can happen is if individual Christians allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we're more concerned about what we bring than about what we take away. 
So what has the Holy Spirit done in you? How are you different or how are you changed? I think the biblical church is a Holy Spirit filled. Come as you are. Let Jesus transform your life potluck. I think that's the kind of church that we need to think about being. It's why you need to know and you need to understand that we pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit every time we gather. The only way that we come to faith, the only way that a message makes sense, the only way God's word opens up to us is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we pray and we welcome and invite him into everything that we do. So what has the Holy Spirit brought to life in you? How are you different because of Jesus? How does the world, how does the world around, how do the people around you look at you and, and see that Jesus is in you? What is it that you're putting out into the world? What are you sharing? What are you bringing that lets the world know that you understand that everything you have actually doesn't belong to you? It belongs to God. How are you changed? Are, are you generously forgiving? Are you radically committed and trusting and in unity with the people around you to the, to the mission and the ministry of wherever you call your church? Or maybe you're saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, preacher. I got no clue. When I was a kid, they talked about the Holy Ghost. I wanted nothing to do with them. I didn't either. It scared me. And then I met him. And my life changed. You can choose to ignore Jesus. You can choose to ignore the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And you can choose to always be wishing your church was something more. Or you can choose to say, God, just, you know what? Do with me what you created me to be. Today we're going to celebrate people that are making a huge statement. Jesus has changed them. Jesus has changed them so much that they're coming to a church, some maybe for the very first time, and they're going to step out into the water in the lake and they're going to do something that, that grown-up adults don't do in our world today. They're going to let someone else push them underwater and trust that they're going to bring them back out. And we will, I promise. Because God has gotten a hold of them and Jesus has become real and the Holy Spirit has changed them. And there's a radical transformation that happens. And when those people step out of the water, they're stepping out as a new creation in Christ. And so my question that I'm going to leave you with, and then we're going to pray, is what is the Holy Spirit doing in you? And if your answer is nothing, do you even know him yet? And maybe your answer is no. And that's okay because that's what we're going to pray about. And so if you know that your life is missing something, if you know that you've done it on your own long enough and that it just doesn't work anymore, you know what? Today's your day. And that beach and that lake has got room for a lot more people. So let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this early church. Thank you for the way that you have radically changed me. God, we talk about transformation and being a new creation and we struggle with it because we all still struggle with sin and we think, well, maybe it didn't work. God, you work always perfectly every time. That's why the Bible talks about we work out our salvation. It isn't that we become perfect. It's that we give our lives to your son who is perfect. So God, as we're gathered here now and as, as we're thinking about this text and the Holy Spirit at work and what our reaction is, God, some of us are, are realizing we need to come back to you. We're not strangers. We just, we've left you for a while. Some of us, we, we just want to grow. We want more of you. We want more of your Holy Spirit. And then there are others who are, who are right now saying, God, I'm willing to give my life to you. I'm ready to submit my life to, to you.
I'm willing to give my life to Jesus. And so, God, I, I just pray that wherever we're at, that your Holy Spirit would fill us in a new and a fresh and a full way, that we would become people who are radically committed to being generous, to being bold, to trusting in you for everything that we have. God, I thank you for those folks that are going to step out in the water to be baptized today. I thank you for the way that you have become real to them. I just pray that you would bless them to an abundant overflowing uh, with the fullness of your Holy Spirit, that they would know, that they would know as they come out of that water, that they are radically transformed into a new creation in you. It has nothing to do with who they are or what they have done. It has everything to do with you and what Jesus has done for us. God, we thank you for who you are. We love you. And we want all that we do in our lives to be your greatest glory, to proclaim the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.